Thank you, Derek. Thank you for a warm welcome. I'm just going to wet my whistle. Yes, yeah, so Lee's on holiday, so you've got me. Um, yeah, from up the road, Harvest Glasgow. Um, and it, yeah, it really is a pleasure to open God's word with you. Um, so I'm going to be in Isaiah, Isaiah, depending on how you say it, Isaiah 42. I'll probably switch between them, um, so whatever. Uh, but if you'd like to open your Bible, make your way to Isaiah 42. Uh, we're going to look at the first nine verses this morning. Um, by doing chapter 42 of a book with 66 chapters in it, um, we're jumping in somewhere around the middle, so it might feel like, well, hopefully it won't feel like we've arrived late to the cinema, we've just got our popcorn, this movie's already started and we're not sure what's going on. To help us not feel like that, let me just quickly tell you about the book of Isaiah. So it was written about 2,700 years ago, and it's influential in, in understanding the history of Israel and understanding how the, the nation of Israel was tempted to trust in things other than God, and how that, that idolatry, that worship in things other than God would lead to them being conquered, being exiled, and ultimately scattered. But it also speaks of hope. Hope beyond this judgment, hope for Israel and hope offered to all nations. And this hope is revealed through God's chosen servant. And this prediction made by, by Isaiah is about 750 years before Jesus was born. And so it's influential in the way that Israel was looking for and expecting Messiah and how early Christians would come to think about Christ and then similarly how we think about Christ now. So hopefully that, that info has given you a chance to find it. Um, I'll read the first nine verses, I'll pray, and then we'll just think about this together. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us of you. It speaks to us of your mission and purpose as creator. It speaks to us of your, your love and your action as redeemer. And it also speaks to us of your glory and wonder as king of kings and lord of lords. I pray that as we, as we hear from you by your word, that, that you would shape us, you would guide us, you would correct us, and, but ultimately you would direct our hearts towards you and to your chosen servant, your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, I'd be uh, surprised if this is news to you, if this is new information, but Prince Harry, the son of the recently coronated King Charles, Prince Harry wrote a book last year. Not news at all, is it, really? And it's made quite a stir. 
In the history of the United Kingdom, it's pretty unusual for the private life of the royal family to be displayed so publicly. For the son of the king to release a sort of a tell-all memoir and to be courting chat shows and doing podcasts and magazine interviews and Netflix shows. The week it was released, it was headline news. It had exclusive stories coming out in the paper every day, a bit, a bit divisive, a bit revealing, but the bestseller, and it was so popular because it claimed to give an insight into the inner working of royalty, of our royal family, of, and of Prince Harry. And in a lot of ways, it's, it was about the public finding out, who is this? Who is this prince? Who is this person? That's a bit like what we're going to look at this morning. Who is this prince? Who is the chosen one? Prophesied and predicted by the creator God 750 years ago. Who is God's chosen servant? So firstly, if you're taking notes, we'll see that God's chosen servant is loved. So verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah is writing God's words to us and we see here that he is recording the very words of God. Now we know that the Bible is God's word. And that where the Bible speaks, God speaks. But here, even more than that, it is God speaking in the first person. So God's speaking here. What's he speaking about? He's speaking about his chosen servant. And God is contrasting his chosen servant with the futility of the idols and other small g gods that others seem to trust in. Including Israel. The people of Israel were trusting in idols. They were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in kings and gods of neighbouring nations. They trusted in pretty much anyone and anything other than their creator, God, Yahweh. But God's chosen servant is so different from these fake, man-made, powerless idols. And we see in these verses that God's chosen servant is loved by his father. I always like to ask this question when I'm speaking about the Old Testament. Um, but I give the answer as well. So what's the best commentary on the Old Testament? The best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And we can confidently say that Isaiah 42 is speaking about Jesus because in New Testament, in Matthew, Jesus tells us that this prophecy is about him. So in Matthew 12, it should be on the screen. Um, just from Matthew 12, starting from 14, it says, but The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Sound familiar? Specifically fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus is God's chosen servant described here in Isaiah. We don't need to wait to the end of the, story, the, end of the sermon to know where the answer comes who it is. But it's kind of hard for us at times to get our head around the predictions the Old Testament makes of Jesus because we also have the New Testament. We, we just see the whole Bible is old. It's all ancient history to us, really. But there's, there's real significance in the gap between these words in Isaiah 42 and then them coming to pass in Matthew. We don't want to miss the impact that this would have had then and should have for us now, as well as all the other Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. All over the Old Testament, it shows us that God can be trusted. He loves his chosen servant, and his chosen servant will fulfill his mission. So we see who God is speaking of, and let's see how he speaks of his son. So it says, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen 
in whom my soul delights. What amazing language the Father uses to speak of the Son. My soul delights that mutual joy and love and delight that exists in the Trinity is amazing. And it's shown so vividly here. The Father delights in the Son and has put his Spirit upon him. The Spirit is with him and working through his ministry. Father, Son, and Spirit on display in Isaiah. The Trinity is not an extra biblical idea. The Trinity is not even just a New Testament idea. It's a whole Bible reality. The Son is precious. The Father delights in the Son. All that Israel should have been but was not is shown in God's perfect chosen servant. And really, in these verses, God is revealing himself. God isn't just some, some abstract idea, some, some deity in the clouds that, you, that we can't have any knowledge of. God in his grace has revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father sending the Son, the Son displaying the infinite wonder of God, and the Spirit resting upon him and working through him. And this is crucial for our understanding of God, and crucial for our understanding of all of reality. This isn't just for, for academics, for seminary classes, or for big theology books. This is what makes Christianity so unique among all other religion, religions. We know and believe in God as Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal in power and glory. And it makes Christianity unique because if God was only one and one, as in one God and one persons instead of one God and three persons. Just to be clear, one God, but within God being Father, Son, Spirit. But if God was only one God and one person, then he would never have known love until he created other beings and other things. Perfect love and community and fellowship would never be part of his character. They would have came later when he decided to create other things. But this isn't the God of the Bible. Because God is Trinity, mutual love and fellowship and community are part of the fabric of who God is. God is and always has been in a relationship of perfect love. Why does it matter? Well, because God didn't create us because he was lonely. God didn't create us so he had someone to love and serve him. He already had that in abundance. Father, Son, and Spirit adoring and enjoying one another for all eternity. God didn't create because he needed anything. Instead, in creation, God shares the joy and love that he knows in with himself and displays his glory through all that he has made, especially in his image bearers in humanity. And it's all for his good pleasure. It's such good news that God is Trinity. Our God is perfect love. Our God is perfect community. And he invites us to be part of that through his chosen servant. So here we have God revealing his answer to his image bearer's weakness and failure. The answer is sending this chosen servant, the redeemer, the rescuer, who will undo all the destructive effects of sin and restore humanity from being enemies to being family because we get to be part of this. We get to be part of this perfect relationship. If we are in Christ, if we trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, then we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, children of the Most High, invited in to this perfect, loving family. To be the son of the king like Prince Harry that we thought about earlier, being the prince, the son of King Charles, must be nice, must come with a lot of privileges, must open a lot of doors. But for Christians, to be the beloved of the creator 
of the universe, to be a child of the King of Kings. What a relationship we are invited into. What love we are invited into. The kind of love that overflows to create reality itself, to delight in and to display his glory. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the Trinity, I would commend this little book to you. I find that's so helpful. Um, it's not really a theology book, although there's a lot of theology in it. It's more of a worship book, and I'm a worship guy, so I would really recommend it. Um, called The Good God by Michael Reeves. It's short, 100 pages, big writing, pictures. What's not to like? Um, <laughs> but God, as Trinity, doesn't need you and doesn't need me, and that's a great thing. Because God is fully perfect and complete, fully loved and loving in and of himself. And we are invited into that relationship through the Son. What a wonderful thing. This is who God's chosen servant is. He is loved and he invites us into that fellowship of love with the Father and the Spirit. Pretty great, right? And there's more. So God's chosen servant is loved. And then next, God's chosen servant is tender. Not weak. Not wet, but tender. Verses 2 to 4. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Jesus' um, first coming that's predicted here is not one of a conquering hero. That comes later. Come, Lord Jesus. But is one of service and sacrifice. And Jesus himself knew his purpose. He knew he came to serve. Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as a servant in his Gospels. So in Mark 10, 45, the well-known example, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for men. Jesus has almighty power, but he's not flaunting it. He will not abuse it. Jesus knew the mission of his first coming, service and sacrifice. Um, another book recommendation. I really recently read this, um, written in 1630. This is not a 1630 version. You can probably tell this is a reprint um, by a guy called Richard Sibbs, and it's called The Bruised Reeds, and it's his meditations on Christ as described in these verses. Um, and there's a few weeks at the start of the year where my poor small group guys at church were getting sent a quote a day, sometimes two, uh, as I worked my way through the book. I really enjoyed it. So this next section is, well, it's influenced strongly by Richard Sibbs, so just a way of attributing. Um, and the first thing Sibbs does in his book is remind us, just as it shows in this passage, that, that Christ cherishes the bruised reed. That the bruised aren't only those who are brought low by suffering, or circumstances, but all who have been brought to see it, that it's actually their sin that bruises most of all. That it's not primarily circumstance, but our sinful response to circumstances that bruises us. And this bruising then gives us a restless desire to have supply from another, which leads us to find our supply and comfort in Christ. Comfort cannot be found anywhere else. It needs to be found in Christ and so he said, helpfully says, the bruising helps us see the worth of Christ, and then the gospel becomes the gospel indeed. Sorry, am I getting too excited? It's making noises, sorry. <laughs> so recognizing our weakness, reckoning ourselves as bruised reeds, is a great thing for us because we have a merciful saviour. God's chosen servant deals tenderly with us. 
And so being aware of our weakness drives us out of ourselves and towards him in whom true strength lies. So acknowledging our weakness becomes strength and his power is perfected in our weakness. And in Christ is also the other image it gives you is uh, tender with our small wick, our small flame of faith. He doesn't extinguish our faintly burning wick. It was Christ that gifted that light that ignited the flame in us in the first instance. And so he will display his grace and power in preserving it. A couple of quotes just from, uh, from Richard Sibbs that, that sum this up. He says, all we need is Christ. In Christ, all perfections of mercy and love meet. How great then must that mercy be that lodges in so gracious a heart. And then he says, can any be more tender over us in Christ? What needs to be have to knock at any other door? And the thing I liked most about Sib's works, which, which was what made a lot of the Puritan writers stand out in that time, was that I felt like instead of um, Sib's writing to us as a, as, a, as, a, like as a teacher writing to a student or as a leader to a follower, a shepherd to sheep, it felt like he was writing as a fellow bruised reed to a fellow fragile flamed and blown around, which is fairly unusual for, for, for theology of the day. Um, so he's not just saying, you are a bruised reed and Christ deals tenderly with you. He's saying we're all bruised reeds and we all take comfort in the fact that Christ deals tenderly with us. What a difference that makes to how we love one another, to how we serve one another, how we deal tenderly with one another. There are not some that have all the spiritual strength and knowledge leading the rest of us. We're all bruised reeds. We all need our flame fanned to help burn that bit brighter. And we can all play a part in doing that in one another's lives. We're all needing the comfort Christ gives. And should also all recognise the heartache that ultimately comes from trying to find comfort in anything else. The application of, of the verses 3 and 4 here helpfully echoed in um, Ephesians 4.32 where it just says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If we look at the recent pretty rapid decline of Christianity in the Western world today, then maybe rousing and waking scripture may feel most appropriate to us. Bible verses that shake us and call us to lead holy lives, to pursue Christ with all we have. And, and we should do that. I mean, I love a bit of that. But there are also so many broken spirits who need soft and comforting words. We need the Spirit's help to discern the balance within, within us between mercy and, and severity, as, as Sib's helpful images for it, with not to kill a fly on a forehead with a mallet. One word spoken in season will do far more than a thousand spoken out of season. Don't kill a fly on a forehead with a mallet. And it's just helpful to recognise that we are, in many ways, in just the same position as other Christians around us. Those we care for, those that we look to share our lives with. I mean, just, just look around you, awkwardly, for a minute, to your left and to your right, behind you. We all suffer our share of pressures, of disappointments, of bruises and scars, sometimes remaining with us for a long time after the event. But God isn't just tender with them. God isn't just tender with the person next to you. God is tender with you as a bruised reed. 
God is kind to fan the flame of your smoking, spluttering little candle. So we can be tender with ourselves as we try to look to Christ. Not in any way excusing our sin. Not giving room or space to the devil. Not using weakness as an excuse in how we treat others. Not being lazy in our pursuit of holiness. But instead looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We don't need to hide from him. We need to come to him. Our posture is not away from it, it's facing him. We can look to God's chosen servant because he is tender with us. If you hear nothing else this morning, Christ is tender with you. He truly speaks to our brokenness. He speaks to our souls. And so we then can be tender with one another. We can understand each other's brokenness and help one another turn our faces to Christ, even in the midst of the bruising. We want to mirror Christ and be tender with one another, to cherish and care for the bruised reeds, to protect and fan the flames of the faintly burning wick, just as God's chosen servant is tender with us. So we're getting there. God's chosen servant is loved by the Father. God's chosen servant is tender towards his people. And then God's chosen servant is on mission. So just before we go on to verses 5 to 7, um, there's just been wee bits in verse 1, 3, and 4 that part of the mission of God's chosen servant is to bring justice. So in verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, again, he will faithfully bring forth justice. 4, till he has established justice in the earth. So what does that mean? Well, God's chosen servant is the only real hope for justice in a world made sick and broken by sin. And justice is really bringing forth and delivering righteousness. Justice is, is more than just legal balance and fairness. It's about God's good government. It's about God's perfect rule over his creation and his people. And uh, Sibs again would say that, yes, other princes and governors can, may be able to make good and smart laws, but they can't write them on people's hearts. Christ sets up his throne in our hearts and we carry his law in our hearts. He's put... God has put an eternal difference between light and darkness that no one can alter. Truth is truth, and error is error, whether we think so or not, whether the world thinks so or not. God's chosen servant is committed to justice, to upholding the truth and establishing righteousness. And how will we do that? Then we just look at verses 5 to 7 again. So thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who sits in darkness. Sorry, from the prison those who sit in darkness. God is making some big promises here. Now, for some of you, this will be easier than others, but do you remember when you were young? <laughs> do you remember when you were young and you were on the playground, when you maybe forgot your lunch money, and you would look to, to tap one of your friends? To get a loan of a pound, maybe just enough for a roll of, rolling sausage or a bag of chips, uh, whatever was the, the order of the day from the local takeaway, a local shop. Sometimes happened to me, and, and growing up in Paisley, none of my pals were exactly rich. 
they, they certainly didn't have money burning a hole in their pocket, so, so they'd be a bit unsure. And so, you know, I would have to, to proclaim my credentials. When have I ever let you down? Of course I'll pay you back. I'm good for it. And this, this continues on into later life. Whether you're applying for a credit card, or a loan, or a mortgage, or car finance, or a visa. <laughs> we've constantly got to proclaim our credentials to show that we've got good credit history, that, we've got, that the bank can trust us to pay back what we're promising, showing that we are good for it. And here in these verses, God is showing his credentials. God is making big promises about bringing light to the world, bringing light to those living in darkness, to free those in bondage. And God has shown us that he's good for it. It's the creator, God himself, making these promises. God says in these verses, I am the one who created all things. I created the whole universe. I created the earth and everything in it. I, I give life itself into my creation. And not only do I give life, I sustain life. So when I say my servant can do what I promise, you can trust my words. You can trust me. I'm good for it. And God tells us to look to this chosen servant. This is God predicting how he will bring his people back to God, back to dwelling with him, back to the garden, back to Eden. This is God showing how his chosen servant will change the game and bring hope for eternity. He is a light for the nation. Already you can see that this isn't just an Israel thing. This is an everyone thing. Light for the nations. Jesus knew his mission. He knew he'd face rejection, betrayal, misunderstanding, that, that so many people would want what they could get from him instead of truly wanting a relationship with his heavenly father. But he knew his mission to establish justice on the earth, to pay the ransom for sin, to offer atonement for those who would repent of their sin and cry out to him in faith. Jesus would not be swayed from his mission. It also says that God's chosen servant will open the eyes of the blind. And so if you're a Christian this morning, you, you'll know the blindness that you had. And that it was Jesus that opened your eyes to see. If you've been given new life, if you've been born again by the Spirit, if you are a new creation, then you know that you were a prisoner to your sin and that Christ has set you free. So we can say with confidence, I can see and I have been set free. There's no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus, in his chosen servant from the law of sin and death. This is the mission of God. One that extends from individual hearts to all nations, to all of creation. So we call people to come and see what God has done. We've been set free. We can see. God's chosen servant is on mission to establish justice, to open blind eyes, to free the captives, and his glory is displayed in the salvation he purchased by the cross. The judgment meant for us falling on him. That is the mission of the God's chosen servant. And then lastly, God's chosen servant is made flesh. So the last two verses there. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Here we, we have God's power on display in these verses. And God saying, I do not give my glory to another. All idols will be thrown down. Now, I don't think in, in West Scotland in 2023, our, our main issue of 
idolatry is, is carving demigod figures out of wood and stone and metal and bowing down to worship them and creating shrines in our homes and, and on top of the mountains and setting up ritual sites in the woods. That's maybe not how our idolatry plays out, but, but we know that there is a worship war going on in our hearts. Probably just in the choices we've had to make this, this week, that we've had so many things that we've been tempted to worship other than God. But God won't suffer dual loyalties. Us worshipping both God and, well, anything else. But we seem to have created so many acceptable idols. And I'm talking about Christians. I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about us, his people, who still fill our hearts with other things. Things to which we're so deeply attached that end up eclipsing our view of God. That cloud the mirror of our hearts so we can't truly see God for who he is. I had a wee list of application ideas. A list of things that might be vying for the affections of your heart. But I'm thinking, let's be honest, I probably don't need to tell you what they are. You probably already know. You probably know what you're tempted to give yourself to more than God. And I'm talking to myself here too. So lovingly, I just want to say today is the day that I stop flirting with other things. Today's the day we need to give up those things that have a hold on us. God won't be mocked. God won't share the throne of our hearts with anything else. No one can serve two masters. What are we trusting in? Where are we finding our rest? What are we trying to drink in to satisfy our soul? Worshipping anything else is like trying to Drink salty seawater to quench your thirst. It just leaves you more and more thirsty and eventually makes you ill and eventually ruins you from the inside out. Why be tempted to find hope and joy in anything else? Things that are just making us more and more broken. Things that continually bruise us, that threaten to break our bruised reed, that that threaten to, to blow out our wee flame. All we need is Christ. What need do we have to knock at any other door? Can any be more tender over us than Christ? So here we see God's power on display. We see that God is glorious and he does not give his glory to another. And yet, in so much of these verses, that's actually exactly what God has been doing. God doesn't give his glory to another and yet we've just spent a considerable amount of time looking at the glory he lavishes on his chosen servant. And so if God doesn't give glory to another and he gives glory to his chosen servant, then God's chosen servant must be divine. He must be God made flesh. And we know that because we have our full text, our full Bibles as well. We know that God's chosen servant is the God-man Christ Jesus. And that only God's chosen servant, God made flesh, will truly satisfy. And that's why I'm so thankful just as we close for this reminder in this prophecy from Isaiah 42. That God reveals his chosen servant to us and that he deals with us gently. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't snuff out even the faintest of light. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. And that's why he gives us a new heart. That's why he makes us his child. All we need is Christ. What need do we have to knock at any other door? Can any be more tender over us than Christ? just want to encourage you to trust afresh in God's chosen servant this morning. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus, thou hast promised not to quench the smoking flax, not to break the bruised reed. Cherish thy grace in me. Leave me not to myself. The glory shall be thine. Lord, we thank you for your chosen servant, Jesus. We thank you that he does not deal with us as our sin deserves, but offers hope instead of judgment. He offers mercy and grace in our time of need, taking upon himself the, the wrath and punishment meant for us, dealt with completely at the cross. And Lord, I just pray that you would nourish us as bruised reeds, that you would flat, fan the flame of our little fragile smoking wick. Give us the strength to, to run from our idols, to give our hearts and our lives and our worship to you alone. Help us burn and shine for you as your children. And thank you that you deal tenderly with us. Lord Jesus, thou hast promised not to quench the smoking flax, not to break the bruised reed. Cherish thy grace in me. Leave me not to myself. The glory shall be thine. Amen.